Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that uh, in your word through Jeremiah, you said to him and to us that your mercies are new every morning. If there's anything that we all have in common, and there's a lot of things we don't have in common. Some of us are, many of us, some of us are young, some of us are older, some of us are midlife. Uh, uh, different uh, personalities, different temperaments, different interests, different skill sets. We're, we're not all alike. It's, this is not a cookie cutter thing. You make each of us uh, different from the guy next to us. But if there is anything that we have in common, it's that we all, as we're here tonight, we all find ourselves needing mercy. And in so many ways, we need mercy. Uh, We are thankful that you are the merciful God. We thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sins You do not reward us according to our iniquities. If you did, it would be over for us. But you are a God of mercy. And not only are you a God of mercy, we have guys facing things. We have guys dealing with things. We have guys with pressure and with great weight on their shoulders. Uh, Some of it of their own making, inevitably, Uh, Others, the results of circumstances outside of their control and their decision-making process, but it has landed on them. Uh, Whatever the case, we need mercy. And when we get up in the morning, we'll we'll need a whole new set of mercies. And we thank you that your mercies, they just keep on coming. They never stop. They never end. We can never out-sin or out-fail your mercy if we will turn to you in brokenness and in repentance. Your mercies are new every morning. That means the concern that we have for the future, whether we can nail a date or peg a month in the future that we're concerned about, waiting on a decision, waiting on a verdict. Here we are in uh, March. We may be waiting on something to happen in June or in August, or whatever it is. Whatever that day is that we're concerned and worried about, you are already there, and you are there waiting for us with mercy. And that's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. He didn't say don't think about it. He didn't say don't plan. Don't give it thought. But don't obsess over it. Don't worry yourself sick over it. Because I'll be out there, I'm already there, and I'll be there with mercy. So in a thousand different ways, we need mercy. And we thank you that you are the giver of mercy. 
Uh, we thank you that the, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Uh, you will never disappoint us, Lord, with too little mercy. You, you overwhelm us. You, you are abundant in loving kindness. So encourage us tonight. Speak to each heart. In a, in a way that only you can do. We ask in Jesus' name, because he's the only one who can do that. Amen. Well, we're going to commence a new series tonight, and it is based out of one line out of one verse in 1 Corinthians as Paul wraps up the book. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verse 13, and we've gone over this passage before, there are four bullet points as he winds up his instruction to the church of Corinth. I only want to deal with one of the bullet points. Uh, the, the verse says, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Um, I'm not quite sh- sure how long we'll go on this series. But the series is going to be entitled, Act Like Men. Uh, this is a men's Bible study. From time to time, I have women ask me, would it be possible to attend the men's Bible study. And in my gracious, kind, and tender way, I say no. I mean, what am I going to say? We don't go to the women's Bible study. It's a men's study. And they know that, and they usually say it, you know, just kind of uh, with, a, with a little joke and a little smile on their face. But um, this is a men's study. And you say, we're just going to kind of look at that one phrase, act like men. Yeah, that's what I want to do for a while. And, and the reason that I want to do it is that we, we, are, we are living in some very, very unique times. Now, every time is unique. Every generation has its problems. Every generation has its challenges. Every generation has its uh, particular set of worries uh, its particular set of problems, its per- particular set of uh, issues that perhaps a prior generation didn't have. Now, some things are always in life. Some things are always there, and people deal with the same things throughout life. But each generation is, is different. Each generation, uh, it, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, how when, when, when you study generations, when you study family histories, when you know a family history, uh, a lot of times what happens is, is that um, children react to how their parents raise them. Um, I've seen churches that are born out of reaction to churches in which the leadership was raised. I've seen churches uh, with, with young leaders, with young pastors, and they basically were born out of reaction to a church that taught the Bible, but had some uh, issues they didn't like. And so 
In reaction to that, they have started a new church with a new approach. You know what's interesting about that new church, the young church with the new approach? Their kids are going to react to them. And their kids are going to start something in reaction to what they didn't like about that church. It's just human nature. It's true in churches. It's true in families. It's true in businesses. It's true in life. We're in a very interesting time. And the reason that we are in such an interesting time is that we are seeing, if you will, a crisis of masculinity uh, among a lot of young men coming up. Uh, The Apostle Paul, as he is concluding this long epistle to the church at Corinth, he's given them four bullets to encourage them. One of the things he says is, I want you to act like men. You should understand this. The church at Corinth was one screwed up church. They were probably the most messed up church in the entire New Testament. They had issue after issue after issue after issue after issue. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you just do a helicopter flyover of 1 Corinthians, you'll see the problem. He says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, they are not lacking in any gift. They have all the gifts. But you go down to verse 13, actually verse 12, uh, actually verse 11, actually verse 10, because he kind of gets a running start at it. And immediately, you know what he does in this letter? He begins with divisions in the church over their favorite preacher. I mean, it had really gotten tough. The, 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 I like this guy, if, if you read it, you know, well, I'm of Paul. Well, another group, well, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They had bumper stickers, put them on their chariots, put them on their donkeys. It was a big deal because right out of the blocks, Paul has to address it. Because in their immaturity, they are focusing on men instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank God for gifted men. We thank God for gifted leaders. You never put those men on a pedestal. You put Christ on a pedestal. Uh, those men, if you put them on a pedestal, they're going to fall. Because men are flawed. Jesus Christ is not flawed. Men will disappoint you. Christ never will. But he immediately, he, he immediately has to get into the whole issue of, of, the, of divisions in the church. Uh, you, you continue through the book. And I'm not going to hit every chapter. But you... <laughs> You, you get down to uh, chapter 4. Uh, and, and, you know, before I get to 4, you got to say something about 3. Because he says in 3, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. They're an immature church. They have all the gifts, but they're immature. And because they're immature, that's why they have the divisions. If you get into chapter 4, um, they are attacking Paul's apostleship. And he says... In 4.2, in this case, it's required of stewards that each one be found trustworthy. It's a very, uh, to me, it's a very small thing. I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Um, he says, the one who examines me is the Lord. Uh, they were, they, 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 there was a contingent of people that didn't like Paul that said, well, he's not one of the original apostles. And, and you see, but Paul was, was chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, 
really, I mean, along with James, became the chief. Yet they had those that didn't want to submit to authority. In chapter 5, Paul says, It is reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. This is the church of Corinth. Paul says the pagans don't even do this. You got a man living in sin with his father's wife. And then, you see, that's, that's unbelievable. And then Paul gives directions and Paul gives instructions. He says in verse 5, I've decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Then he goes down and says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? We don't judge pagans. They're just being pagans. But those in the church, we judge. If you're in the church and you're going to live in continuous sin and habitual sin and sexual immorality, we're going to handle this. And when sin is not handled in a church, when it's habitual, when it's public, when it's not handled, when it is coddled, when it is rationalized, when it is winked at, then the church is sick, the church becomes cancerous, the church uh, loses its power. Paul deals with it. All the way through, uh, you go to chapter 6. They're suing each other in court. They're hiring attorneys and they're going after it. Paul says this shouldn't be. You ought to be working this stuff out. Um, you, you, got, you got issues uh, in, in 7 and 8 uh, about marriage. Uh, they're, they're unclear about commitments to, to believers, unbelievers. They're, they're not grounded in verse 8. You, they got divisions over things sacrificed to idols, what they can eat, what they can't. Uh, you get into, you get into uh, chapter uh, 12, and you get into chapter 14. They've got all the gifts, they've got all these spiritual gifts, but they're misusing the gifts for their own edification instead of for the edification of others. <sighs> they got a lot of issues. I'm trying to make a point. This church was messed up. And one of the things that Paul says... As he finishes, is he says, I want you to act like men. It's very important that you act like men. Now, he does say this, and, and this will give you a little bit of context. When he says in 13, he says, be on the alert. Why? Because the scripture says that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So you've got to be on the alert, because you have an enemy. He says, uh, stand firm in the faith. The problem was they weren't standing firm in the faith. They weren't mature in the faith. They didn't know the word. They were drinking milk. They weren't eating meat. Uh, He says, be strong. Well, how is it that you're strong in the Lord? Ephesians 6.10 says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. They were an immature church. But in their immaturity, in their immaturity, Paul could say to them, oh, by the way, Corinth was a seacoast city. A city much like San Francisco or like New Orleans when, when you've got a seacoast city, when you've got ports, when you've got ships, when you've got sailors coming in from all over the world, those cities are normally not Bible Belt cities. Those are cities of debauchery. They're cities of immorality. They're cities where anything goes. That was the Church of Corinth. So they were in a godless culture. But they had not gone so far off the cliff that when Paul said to them, act like men, you see, when he said to them, act like men, watch this, they knew what he was talking about. I would submit to you that where we are as a culture, you, you could quote this verse 
to a significant number of people in our churches, a significant number of people in our culture, you could say to them, to the, to the men, act like men, and you would have a significant segment that would not be quite clear what you mean. It's a strong statement. But I think it's where we are. And when you start seeing book after book after book being published, and I've been reading these books over the last several weeks, when you see secular books being written about the crisis of masculinity among young men coming up, you know we've got a problem. Now, we talked about this before in here. And you said, yeah, are you going over this turf again? I, I want to go a little bit more into detail about what it means to act like a man. Because we are living in critical days. We're living in critical days where men, we've got men in here, where I think one of our tasks as men who know Christ, I think one of our tasks as men is to be on the lookout for a younger man or two that God may bring into our sphere of influence. Um, as I'm going to describe some of this tonight, maybe a, a son will come to mind. Maybe a grandson will come to mind. Uh, a nephew might come to mind. A son-in-law might come to mind. Or get this one, a potential son-in-law. Those are the guys you want to intimidate. <laughs> At least you want to get their attention. And I'm joking around. But you do want to interact with them because that's your daughter. Now, I want to ask a fundamental question. When Paul says, act like men, here's my question. How does one learn to act like a man? Very simple question. Historically, the answer has been very simple. The way that a young man, a boy, learns to act like a man is by observing how his father lives life. But we got a problem in this culture. The reason we have a problem is that for a long, long time, we've been losing our fathers. When you have best-selling books with the title of Fatherless America. That, that pretty much nails the whole thing. When, when you look where we've been as a country, as a culture, where we moved uh, after decades and decades and decades of being a culture that encouraged marriage, well, there was a shift in the late 60s, early 70s, and you can do the studies, and you know this to be true just by observing things, we went from a culture of marriage to a culture of divorce. When I was in fourth grade, 1919, actually, what was that? It was around 58, 59. I'm shooting baskets with a kid across the street named Craig. We're shooting baskets in the driveway. And we're just shooting baskets. And... Uh, you know how guys shoot baskets and you're kind of talking in between. And I said to Craig, I said, hey, Craig, uh, where's your dad? I never see your dad. And he said, oh, my dad doesn't live here. 
I said, he doesn't live here. And he, and he said, no. I said, why doesn't your dad live here? He says, my mom and dad are divorced. And I said, what's that? That's what I said. Now, let me tell you why I said that. Because nobody in my elementary school, fourth grade class, none of their parents were divorced. Nobody in 58. Nobody. Except Craig. Everybody else in there was living with the original parents in 1958. Nobody in my family was divorced. We had these big family reunions. Nobody was divorced. I didn't know what divorce was. Can you imagine a kid in fourth grade not knowing what divorce was? Within 20 years, you see, Craig was in the minority because he was the only kid in our fourth grade class whose parents were divorced. You flip that, go 20 years ahead, if a kid was living with his original parents, he was in the minority. You following me? You tracking me? Because there was a cultural shift there, wasn't there? And we went from a culture of marriage to a culture of divorce. One of the things that went with that was absent fathers. So, you see, when you have absent fathers or you have um, uh, distant fathers, it's possible to have a father in the home, but he's distant. He's not connected. He's not wired in. He's not hardwired into his kids or into his sons or daughters. So you can have absent fathers. You can have distant fathers. You can have some some guys have abandoned. They've been abandoned by their fathers. Their fathers just aren't in their lives. I, 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 I can't... Think of how many times I've talked to guys who've said to me, I've never met my dad. I have no clue who he is. If he were to walk in here, I wouldn't know him. And you see, this is epidemic. It's epidemic. Paul says, act like men. Question, how does one learn to act like a man? Historically, it's God's plan that you learn how to be a man by observing your father. Turn me to the book of Proverbs. See, these social ideas and social engineering and changes in laws away from the scriptures have monumental consequences in society. If you look at the book of Proverbs, there's plenty of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. But something, it's it's easy to overlook something in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is primarily a father instructing his son about how to live life how to live life skillfully, and how successfully to become a man. So he is giving him the word of God, the truth of God. He is interacting with his son, and he is, he is foreseeing the things that his son is going to encounter, and he is instructing him so that his son, when he encounters these various situations, can act like a man, a godly man, a man who follows the Lord. Note, if you, let me just demonstrate this to you. Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instructions. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. By the way, you know what that's dealing with right out of the blocks? Peer pressure. Peer pressure and poor friends. Right out of the blocks, he's instructing his son. You want to be careful who your friends are. You want to be careful about being pressured by your friends. They're going to say, and by the way, he's looking ahead. Good football coaches look ahead. Good basketball coaches, good baseball, good coaches, period. Look ahead. They look at the game film of who the upcoming opponent is. 
they figure out the offense they're running, the defense schemes, all that jazz. All right, let's, let's say they, they figure out what offense they're running, okay? They'll say to their defensive unit, look it, they're going to do this, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do this. When they do this, you do this. When they do this, you do this. We've never seen this offense before. I've seen it. So when they do this, you do this. When they do this, you do this. See, what a good coach does is that he prepares his players in advance for the situation before they encounter the situation. That's what good fathers do. You say, I never did that with my sons. All right, then do it as a grandfather. Right? Hey, we've all screwed up. If we, if we uh, sit here and start thinking about our mistakes as fathers and grandfathers, you're going to get all tied up in knots and get paralyzed. We could write multi-volume uh, uh, books on our mistakes. There's nothing you can do about the past. You can't go back and change it. You, what, what you can do, now if there's someone, you've done some damage relationally and you can still talk with them, and get it resolved, go do that. But in terms of behavior, just start doing the right thing. If you were passive and you didn't, man, I was so taken up with my job and my work, okay, you were. You can't change that. But you can do something about today. You can do something about tomorrow. You can get a little more intentional. Okay. All the way through Proverbs, it's a father talking to his son. As a result of talking to his son, he's going to show his son what it means to act like a man. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, my son, if you receive my words. Say, man, my, my son's he's, he's in a great crisis right now. Well, you know what? He needs you more than ever. When boys are in crisis, they really need their dad. I can't believe he made this decision. Yeah, but he did because he's young and he's not real bright. Just like you were that way when you were that age. You remember? I remember, um, and I have John's permission to say this. Um, I remember I had a sense when John was in a senior year that, that he was hiding something from me. And I couldn't, I just, I just knew he was, I couldn't get it. So I began to pray for him. I began to fast and pray on Tuesdays that God would work in such a way that John would tell me what he was hiding from me. I didn't want to go ride him. I didn't want to drive him away. So I just asked the Lord, Lord, would you work in his heart and just make this occur so that he would, we, could, we could have a discussion and that he'd want to talk? And so that went on for weeks, maybe a couple months. And one night, we're finishing dinner, um, Go in the living room. Mary's got some coffee. I think there was a basketball game on. I can't remember. I sit down on the sofa. Mary walks in. John is in the red chair. And uh, I just happen to look over at him. And here's this big weightlifting kid. And he's got tears running down his cheeks. I said, John, what's wrong? And he couldn't talk. He just was choked up. So I got up. I walked over. I knelt down beside the chair. Put my arm around him. I said, what's going on? And he couldn't talk. He just, I mean, he's got the tears flowing. He said, I can't tell you. I'm too ashamed. 
And we, I just put, kept my arm around her. I said, well, that's all right, John. That's all right. You let those tears go, man. After a minute or so, I said, well, hey, listen, I know you can't talk. Can I ask you some questions? He nodded his head. I said, so, John, are you drinking? Yeah. You getting drunk? Yeah. You taking drugs? Mm-hmm. Are you taking this drug? Uh-huh. Are you taking this drug? Yeah, I tried it. Are you taking this drug? No. I didn't say it out loud, but I sure thought it. I said, what about this? No, I haven't done that. There was a breakthrough. Now, did it all get worked out that night? No. But we had our breakthrough. And he said, Dad, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed, and I don't know how to get out of this. And I said, well, you know what? We'll just go through it together. Okay? We'll just walk through it together. It'll be all right. You're not in this by yourself. And Mary, you know, she'd come over and we're just hugging and crying. and That's what families do. Every family gets in trouble. Every family gets in crisis. There are no perfect families. We're all sinners. We're all flawed. But see, when there's crisis, when a boy, when a daughter gets in trouble, what do they need? They need their dad. They need their grandpa. That's what they need. That's what men do. You don't get mad. You don't get angry. You don't start throwing stuff. You don't lose your temper. You model Christ in that situation. How merciful has Jesus been to you? Pretty merciful. Well, then you be that merciful in return. All the way through Proverbs. My son, my son. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. My son. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 1. My son. In 4, he's talking to his son uh, about, he starts talking in verse 9 about money. Um, it's, it's all kinds of wisdom. Uh, you, get into, you get into 4, he starts talking to his son about, uh, about being a liar. Uh, you get down to verse 23. Um, you get down to verse, uh, chapter 5. My son, my son, chapter 5, verse 1. He starts talking to him about sexual sin and sexual immorality and sexual temptation. Uh, you get to 5-7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. He gets real clear in 15. He gets real clear in 19. Uh, he talks about the importance of marriage, uh, of not sleeping around. Uh, he says in um, uh, verse 19, as loving hind and a graceful doe, uh, let her breast satisfy you at all times, speaking of his wife. Uh, all, the way th- all the way through, um, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. My son, 
my son. Just sometimes go through Proverbs, and every time you see the word my son or my sons, just circle it. Uh, so here's the question. How does a young man, uh, how does a boy learn how to become a man? By observing his father. So we should not be shocked that as a culture we're in trouble because we have lost our fathers. I, I'm speaking uh, in general terms. Am I not? But, but the issue of fatherlessness, of distant fathers, of absent fathers, is huge. Therefore, we should not be surprised that we have somewhat of a crisis in this culture. And I want, I want to, again, emphasize that one of the reasons I'm going over this is that I, I think we should, one of the things we should be on the lookout for is that God would bring a younger man into your life who needs the wisdom of an older man. Uh, and some of you guys are saying, well, you know, Steve, I have daughters. All right, well, then you want to be talking to your daughters. You, you want to be as clued into your daughters as you can. Now, I think this, personally, I think it's harder to be connected, clued in to a daughter than it is to be a son. And the reason I say that is, I know what it is to be a boy. I don't know what it is to be a girl. Girls are a great mystery. I used to tell Rachel, I, I used to tell her, I said, Rachel, how am I doing as a dad? She said, Dad, you're doing fine. I, I, I said, Rachel, let me tell you, I get worried sometimes because I, I feel like, I, I understand what it is for the boys, what they're dealing with, but I, I never, I'm not a girl. I don't, so you got to help me. I said, how am I doing? She said, you're doing fine, Dad. Well, I said, tell me an area I can improve. She said, Dad, I don't like it when you yell. I said, what the crud are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, yell? I didn't say that. She said, sometimes you yell, Dad, and I don't like that. I said, all right. Well, you know what? That's a, that's a good, there's a good one. I asked for it. Let me see if I can work on that. And I tried to work on it. You see? But girls are kind of a mystery to me. But if you have girls, you see, one of the things, see, the best thing you can do for your girl is to be a godly man. The best thing you can do for your girl, for your daughter, is to love your wife unconditionally. That's the best thing you can do. Because you are her model of masculinity. You know that? And when your daughter, there are going to be these guys who are going to come into her life, and they're going to take her out, and some of them are going to pursue her. Some of them are going to want to take advantage of her sexually in the day and age in which we live. You see? You know what happens with uh, young men when they come into the life of a daughter? Uh, What daughters do subconsciously is that they take the template of their father. And I'll use this hand. They take the template of their father and his model and his example. And every young man that comes into her life, she runs him through the template of her father when she saw her dad. So if a guy is uh, uh, critical and, and crass with her and disrespectful, she should bounce off of the template of your example because you did not treat your wife that way and you did not treat your daughter that way. Am I making sense here? If he in any, in any way is abusive, he should immediately bounce off, and she should come and tell you. If, if he comes in and tries to take advantage sexually, you put out a contract. <laughs> a little humor there. Semi. <laughs> but you're the father. 
I told you guys up front, remember I said, I got too much stuff. I often bring too much stuff here. Uh, so I'm already a little behind. Are you, are, you guys, am, are you guys tracking with me or am I on another planet? Are we okay? Okay. Um, what I'm saying is, as a result of this, I hope we would be a little more tuned in as God brings uh, young men into our lives or if you have daughters, that you be a little bit more tuned in to where your daughters are, what they're dealing with, what the issues are that are around them. And a lot of times your wife can be a great source. Oftentimes I ask Mary, so kind of update me what's going on here. You see, because she's clued in. I mean, she's got all the radar screens going in the kitchen, everything. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about? And a lot of times we're out there and we're doing our thing and we're just trying to keep, you know, pay the bills. So she can give me a quick update. You know, okay. Let's have the ushers come forward. We'll receive the offering. <laughs> It'll give me a few minutes to get my thoughts together. Have you heard the term of failure to launch? It's actually a movie, I believe. I haven't seen the movie. I read a review on it. Decided they wouldn't watch it. Uh, failure to launch is basically uh, a movie that was made that typifies kind of where the culture is of young guys in their 20s that are refusing to move into manhood. Um, what we are seeing, and I'm making, I'm, I, there, I'm making general statements, and thank God that there are exceptions to this, but we are seeing young men come up who for a number of different reasons are what I would call aimless young men. They're without direction, they're without purpose, they're unsure of the next step. Now, to a degree, that's always, you know, there are always issues. We're unsure and all of this. But it is at epidemic proportions in our culture right now. Um, you could call it a failure to launch. You could call it a failure to grow up. You could call it a failure to embrace responsibility. There are a number of books that have been written about this. Generally speaking, and again, Forgive me because I've gone over this a couple times. I've alluded to this. We, we are living in an age where we have a number of young men coming up who are attempting. Here's the essence of what I'm talking about. When we talk about a failure to launch, when we talk about aimless young men, we are talking about young men that are attempting to prolong adolescence and put off manhood. Historically, there are five markers. There are five transition points from adolescence, being a teenager, to becoming a responsible male adult. I'll give them to you real fast. Number one, you complete your education. Whatever it is, finish it. Just get it done. Just get it done. Okay? Say, well, my classes are so boring. Of course they are. What do you expect? Okay? I can count on one hand the number of teachers I had in my life that were exciting and innervating and touched my life. The rest of them were boring. Just thought I'd share that with you. It's probably true in your life too, right? But you know what? So what? It's boring? Get it done. Write the paper, turn it in, pass the test. 
Just get it done. Get the piece of paper. Because if you walk in there and you apply for a job, uh, have you graduated from high school? No, they won't hire you. You got the credential? Yeah, oh, yeah, I graduated from high school. Do they ask you your GPA? No, fine, you're in. Right? There are certain credentials you've got to have. So get the credential. Here's number two. Move out of the house. Leave. Leave. We have seen, and you guys have seen it, we got 20-somethings that are still living at home. Not because of an emergency. Emergencies, families take care of each other. It's a way of life. That's not good. That's not good. It's a failure to launch. They need to launch. They need to get out there. Here's number three. They need to be financially independent. Well, it's a tough economy. It sure is. So you might have to work not one job, but two jobs. You might have to work three. Two full-time and one part-time. You say, man, I'd get really tired. Yeah, you would. Welcome to manhood. You don't know where you are. All you know is you're there and you're showing up and you're working. So the first one is finish your education. What's the second one? Move out. Third one, get financially independent. Oh, here's number four. Get married. And here's number five. Have kids. Those are the markers to manhood from adolescence. Uh, I mentioned there's, uh, there are a bunch of books being written these days about this. Uh, not Christian books, necessarily. Secular books. When the secular culture sees the problem, you know there's a problem. Would you agree with that? When there are articles in the New York Times about this, ah, oh, then you know there's a real problem. Um, one of the better books I've read, it's not a Christian book, but it's called Manning Up. Interestingly enough, a lot of these books about young men and the aimless young men and their failure to launch, a lot of the books I'm reading are written by women and not by men. I, I don't know what to make of that. This is a very good book. Let me give you a couple shots from this book. And uh, I, I have more marked than I can actually do. Uh, one young woman says, we are sick of hooking up with guys. And by guys, she means males who are not boys or men, but something else entirely. Guys who talk about Star Wars like it's not a movie made for people half their age. A guy's idea of a perfect night is to hang out around a PlayStation with his bandmates. By the way, the age group that buys more video games than any other age group is the age of 34 and 35. I'm so, what's that? Oh, I thought someone was... Okay, I wasn't sure what was going on. I just heard noise is what I heard. I wasn't sure what it was. Um, she says, uh, I'm talking about guys that feed you... Is it Chipotle or Chipotle? Okay, we got nine different pronunciations. You know the place I'm talking about. And ride their bikes in traffic. They are more like... Get this line. They are more like the kids we babysat than the dads who drove us home. Now, that captures it. Not so long ago, um, this writer pins uh, Kay Hemnowitz. She says, not long ago, average mid-20-somethings, both male and female had achieved most of the milestones of adulthood. High school diploma, financial independence, marriage and children. These days they hang out in a novel sort of limbo, a hybrid state of semi-hormonal adolescence and responsible self-reliance. The limbo, I'll be calling it pre-adulthood, um, 
has much to recommend it, especially for the college-educated men I'll be writing about in this book. What she means by that, they have a lot of benefits without the responsibility. Uh, it seems uh, about time to state what has become obvious to legions of frustrated young women. It doesn't tend to bring out the best in men. When I preached here a week ago Sunday, I had two gals come up to me and uh, in their 30s, very attractive, and they said, where are the men? Where are the young men? We both in our heart of hearts, have desire to be married and to raise kids in the fall of the Lord. Where are the guys? I said, you just need one. That's what I always told Rachel. If you needed 12, you'd be in trouble. You just need one. Let's pray in the one. I'll give you a couple shots here. Uh, a couple random thoughts. Unlike adolescents, pre-adults don't know what is supposed to come next. They have many questions about their lives. They're not sure what the gender scripts are, if there are any. Now, that wasn't true 25 years ago. Because, see, there have been changes in how young women are raised as well as young men. They're not even sure what the word adult means. Uh, No wonder, then, a lot of 20 or 30-somethings find themselves suffering through a quarter-life crisis, a period of depression and worry over the shape of their lives. With no life outline to rely on, they struggle with their own private development hell. Uh, Let's talk about the women. Today's college-educated 23-year-old woman, of course, has big plans. Speaking of how it used to be in America, a woman would get married, have children, raise the children, stay at home. Today's college-educated 23-year-old woman, of course, has other plans, big plans, and a complete reversal of the expectations of their female ancestors and even their own mothers. Marriage and children for pre-adult women are optional at any rate, not anything to be thinking about now. What is not optional is the same for both women and men, finding work that will bring meaning and money to their lives. By large margins, young women say it is very important that they be economically set before they even consider getting married. Uh, It goes on and says, uh, feminist-influenced mothers and fathers began grooming their daughters for the workplace like prize horses over the last 20 years. And one one, uh, description of these women, they call them alpha girls, not alpha males, alpha girls. Uh, Talks about the fact that in many modern jobs today, they not only factor in... um, um, Well, let's put it this way. They factor in something that was never factored in before, which is called emotional intelligence. I never heard of emotional intelligence 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Emotional intelligence is big now. You know what it is? It's the ability to connect. And women outdo men on the ability to connect. So we're raising all kinds of issues here. Um, Let's get to the chase. Um, What's developed is, in this culture, we have what is called the child uh, slash man. And these are the, 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 this is what I want us to be on the alert for. Um, and let me find my slot here. There's an actor by the name of Adam Sandler. Uh, he's right up there with Charlton Heston. 
He's the Gregory Peck of his day. It's kind of tragic, and she writes in here about Spandler that he actually made some movies that were a little more thoughtful, but they didn't do well. So he started doing these stupid movies. That's kind of what he's known for. They're just stupid movies. Um, and there's always a guy and there's always a girl. And here's the description. If she is ambitious, he is a slacker. If she is hyper-organized and self-directed, he tends towards passivity and vagueness. If she is mature, he is happily not. Their opposition is stylistic as well. She drinks sophisticated cocktails in bars, mirrored bars. He burps up beer on ratty sofas. And it just goes on and on and on. One of the things that we notice, and I've already touched on this, is that in our day and age, men like women are taking longer to finish their education, longer to get settled in the careers, longer to get married, and longer to become fathers. I'll give you, I'm going to give you one more, and I'm done. In 1970, okay, 1970, men between the ages of 25 and 29, you got that in your head? 25 to 29, 1970, 80% of them in America were married. In 2007, only 40% of them were. The drop of half. Uh, that has implications. It has implications for women because women have something called the biological what? Clock. Oh, but here's the other thing. Because of the sexual mores that have, the, the standard has not gone up, at least I haven't noticed it, they've gone down. And, here, and here's something to be considered. Why should a guy get married when he can pretty much get sex, pretty much whenever he wants it. Because you see, the further we get away from the Bible, more, the more trouble we get into. Oh, and where is it that you say, well, those are boys being boys? No, boys are to be taught by their fathers. Boys are to be instructed. Boys make mistakes, you talk to them about it, and what lessons have we learned, and how is this going to change in the future? That's the job of a father. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul said this, Paul said, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to reason like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's sort of the theme verse for this. You see, there's a point in life when you quit acting like a boy. There's a time in life when you, start, when you stop acting like an adolescent and you begin to act like a man. And it's our job as men, once again, as God brings younger men under your sphere of influence, and I, I would think as a result of this study, he'll probably do that for many of us. As a result of looking at this, dealing with some of this, could be someone in your family, could be someone outside of your family, but the task that would be your job would be to coach them, and what, what are you coaching them to do? To put away childish things, because they're men. They're not children, they're men. You don't act like a child, you're a man. You don't think like a child, you're a man. It's time to put it away and become a man and seek maturity and like a laser go after responsibility. What is, um, Paul says, act like men. What, uh, what is uh, acting like a man? What is, uh, what is manliness? This guy named Harvey Mansfield. He is a conservative professor at Harvard. He's still alive. 
He's written a book called Manhood. Not a Christian book. Has Christian principles in it. Uh, I, I find that some secular books I read that have biblical wisdom, if you go back up the generational chain, you'll see Christian grandparents. A lot of these guys that have modern-day wisdom that don't know the Lord, they're living off the spiritual capital of the grandparents or the great-grandparents. It's interesting how that works. Some guys live off the inheritance of old money, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents. Well, some guys have spiritual capital. And they don't know Christ, but they still have certain things in place. Uh, Mansfield, to me, appears to fit that. Uh, Mansfield defines manliness as confidence in a situation of risk. Now think about that. Let me throw you for a minute. What is manliness? It's having confidence in a situation of risk. Why is it so many young guys don't want to get married? Well, some of them is because of divorce, and they don't, I've had young Christian guys say, I'm afraid I'm going to divorce because my parents divorced and my parents were Christian. And so they're afraid of divorcing. And what I always say to them, just because your folks divorce doesn't mean you have to divorce. What you do is you just put divorce in the same category as armed robbery. It looks to me like you've eliminated that as an option in your life. Most of you guys in here, anyway. All right, is that an option? No, it's not. All right, put divorce in the same category. It doesn't exist. It's not an option. You can't go there. You refuse to go there. You never even think about it. I just married my nephew, uh, Jason, on Saturday. And Alyssa. For better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, till death do us part. Oh, there was another thing in there. Thank you. Better or worse, richer, poor, and sickness and health, forsaking all others. That means you don't go look up on the internet the girl you took to the high school prom. Forsaking all others. Right? Till death do us part. There's a biblical standard. Okay? So, man, I'm... And see, some of the biggest decisions of life you make in the 20s. They affect your whole life. Who you marry is going to affect your whole life. Is it not? All you old guys said, yep. Yep. <laughs> Man, a life changes. And people change. And see, when you're going out and you're dating, you're engaged, you got your best foot forward, and so does she. You're trying to impress each other. But then you start living real life, and you find out what you really got. That's when it gets interesting. A lot of us married an image, not the person. Think about what he said. Manliness is confidence in a situation of risk. Why are so many guys not willing to commit to get married? It's risky. It's risky. Marriage is risky. But you see, there has to be enough confidence that there is a purpose that God has in mind for you, that there is significance in getting married, in being faithful to a wife, in having children, in raising those children, in instructing those children, in doing your work, in doing your task to the glory of God. You won't be famous. You'll be obscure, but God knows who you are. And you work, and this is life, to enjoy it with the woman that he has given you. And then you're going to die, and then you go to heaven to be with Christ forever. That's life. That's life. Well, things may not turn out the way that I think. You're exactly right. They won't turn out the way you think. Well, that's risky. Yes, it is. But manliness is the confidence to move ahead and risk. Is it not? I would define manliness 
is stepping with authority into chaos. That's how I define it. Stepping, if you're the person with the legitimate authority in a situation and there's chaos, you step in and you handle it and you bring order into the chaos. What did Paul do in Corinthians? Paul finishes that book by saying, act like men. And what had Paul just finished doing in a letter? There is chaos all through this church, and what does Paul do? He steps in with authority, and he brings order to fix the chaos. That's what men do. That's what men do. Give me a second. There are passages in the book of Proverbs that describe an individual called a sluggard. I want to give them to you real quickly, all right? Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. It says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard, and when will you arise from your sleep? I know of a situation, I observed it most of my life, of a man who almost died when he was a little boy. He almost died on a couple of occasions. Because he almost died, his parents coddled him, his parents spoiled, spoiled him beyond belief to the point that he could walk into his dad's store in high school and hit the cash register and take out whatever he wanted. And this was in the 40s. He was given everything. Little was required of him because they were so glad he was alive. He actually got married after being showing years of irresponsibility, got married, had children, but because he never learned discipline, he could not get out of bed. Would stay up till 2, 3, 4 in the morning playing pool. Would not go to work. He was, he was remarkably gifted. His best friends were um, uh, judges, were professionals, were um, men of stature and caliber in the community, and he was a sluggard. Uh, He was an unbelievable salesman, and here's what would happen. He would sleep in till 10, 11, 12 o'clock, had several kids. He would um, uh, not pay the mortgage, not pay it the next month, and then it would go into foreclosure, and they're going to come and take the house. You know what he would do? He would go out and work three to four days on commission and make enough to make it all up and to give himself a cushion for the next two or three months because he was so good at it. And then he would go back and do it again. That's how he lived his whole life. It's a sluggard. Uh, Proverbs 10, verses 4 and 5. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. There are all kinds of verses in Proverbs about the sluggard. Now, because I didn't manage my time well, I can't read all the verses. But I'm going to read to you Derek Kidner's summation of the sluggard. 
He says three things about the sluggard in Proverbs. He says, number one, he will not begin things. Relate this to what we've been talking to tonight. The sluggard will not begin things. Number two, he will not finish things. Number three, he will not face things. Listen to what he says. The sluggard in Proverbs is a figure of tragic comedy. With his sheer animal laziness, he is more anchored to his bed. Oh, he is more than anchored to his bed. He is literally hinged to it. That's Proverbs 26, 14. He makes preposterous excuses. There is a lion outside, and I can't go to work. That's Proverbs 26, 13. And he is ultimately helpless. Number one, he will not begin things. When we ask him in Proverbs 6, 9, and 10, how long, when will you actually be responsible, we are being too definite for him. He doesn't know. All he knows is his little delicious drowsiness. All he asks for is a little respite, a little, a little, a little. He does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunities slip away. So he will not begin things. Number two, he will not finish things. Uh, if you look at Proverbs, let me show you how he won't finish things. Uh, Proverbs twelve twenty seven: a slothful man does not roast his prey. Now you stop and think about it. He killed the animal. But he just doesn't have it in him to roast it. He'd have to get some wood. He'd have, it's just too much stinking work. He doesn't finish what he starts. When you see a young man who doesn't finish what he starts, it's your task to help him learn how to finish what he starts. Didn't someone have to help you learn how to finish what you start? Oh, well, so how do I do that? Well, it depends on your relationship, you see. But there has to be some kind of consequence. Here's number three. He will not face things. The sluggard comes to believe his own excuses and to rationalize his laziness for Proverbs 26, 16 says, He is wiser in his own conceit than seven men can render a reason. The sluggard is wise in his own eyes. Um, because he will not begin things, because he will not finish things, because he will not face things, consequently he is restless with unsatisfied desire and he is helpless in the face of the tangle of affairs which he has made on himself. Proverbs calls it a hedge of thorns. It's a, it's, it's a refusal to engage. It's a refusal to embrace responsibility. Uh, he ends this by saying, uh, quoting Proverbs 24.32, Then I beheld and considered well, I saw and received instruction. If there is a young man in your life, you should pray Proverbs 24, 32 for him. That he would behold, and he would consider, and he would see, and he would receive instruction. While there is time. Uh, Kidner finishes by saying, the wise man will learn while there is time. He knows that the sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man who has made too many excuses 
too many refusals, and too many postponements. It has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. It's our job to wake them up if they're in your life. Is it not? But may I say this to you? In order to do that, you're going to have to act like a man. You're going to have to step in, and there's going to be some risk. And they may not always like it. But something else the proverb says, and I don't remember the verse. It's in 20-something. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let's pray. Father, we can think back in our lives to a man or two that played a role in our life. They were on our team. They were for us. They didn't always tell us what we wanted to hear. But in a context of being on our team, now and then they would tell us exactly what we needed to hear. I think of David and his one son, and I think of that verse that says, and David, David never crossed him. David never told that boy what that boy needed to hear. David coddled that boy. He let him get away with whatever he wanted to get away with, and that boy destroyed his own life. I would pray, Lord, that we might be on the lookout. There is such a need So many of these young guys have not seen the real thing. So many of these guys, no one's poured into their lives. They they are just confused and they are wandering. They're gifted, they have skills, but they don't know what they are. And Lord, it seems like all the rules have changed. The playing field has changed over the last 20, 25 years. We would ask that you might use us to give direction, to give encouragement, to give hope, and to do some coaching for these young guys coming up so that they could become the men that you would want them to be. We're not all preachers. We don't know the Greek and the Hebrew, but you've given us life skills and wisdom. May you use us to equip young men so that they might become the leaders of their generation. We would ask in Jesus' name.